As you stand in body or spirit, let us come before God's word, uh, reciting what Jesus called the great commandment, uh, known uh, after its uh, first word in Hebrew, Shema. And uh, if you'll follow after me in Hebrew, we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, We're back in the Gospel of John. Uh, Last week, you may recall, we looked at the prayer that Jesus had with his disciples and the night in which he was betrayed. We'll back up a few uh, chapters to chapter 13 and look at uh, some of what happened at the beginning of that evening when he was gathered with his disciples. These verses come from chapter 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said, not every one of you. And picking up in verse 21, his disciples stared at one another after Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And they were at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to his disciple and said, ask him which one he means. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. In the church in which I grew up, one of the highlights of Holy Week every year was the Thursday service in which we reenacted or celebrated the Last Supper. So what our pastor did is he set up a table and there was a candle at the table and 12 chairs. And so we took communion 12 at a time and sat in, uh, around the table and the seats representing, um, I suppose, the disciples. But now as I've grown up, there's a couple problems I have looking back with that service, which was actually very popular. The first one is this. I've come to understand uh, through scholars and research that uh, the, t- the tables were not like the kind of tables we have, like... Uh, a table where everybody would sit um, around it, and it's a, a straight or rectangular uh, table, or like the table in Da Vinci's painting of the Lord's Supper, like where everybody, or Last Supper, everybody's on one end of the table. Actually, they, they made their tables in a U-shape. They called it triclinium parts, and that way they could uh, share, uh, like we share salsa at the Me- at a Mexican food restaurant, you know, they, they could share three or four to a bowl the, uh, what they were going to dip. Uh, the second thing, though, and it bothers me even more, is when I was a kid, it always made me nervous at service, because I was wondering when I sat down at the table, is this Judas's seat? 
<laughs> I, don't, I don't wanna sit in Judas's seat. But what it did is it raised a question that I've thought about often in my life. When I'm at the table with Jesus, where do I sit normally? And I thought about that, and I think on my best days, I sit in the seat of John. You know, John, he was the beloved disciple, the youngest one. The evidence is he would have sat next to Jesus. Uh, so they, when they reclined at table together, he was right with him. Uh, and he had a very close and loving relationship with Jesus. Jesus referred to him as my little one. And, and in very uh, intimate uh, and affectionate terms, Jesus really loved John, who was the youngest of the disciples. And sometimes I feel that. That. Sometimes I'm really close to Jesus and, and I can feel his love. Uh, the others knew he was close to Jesus. So that's why they said to him, look, he said somebody's going to betray him. You ask him. And the, uh, the understanding is, well, you're sitting next to him. Plus, I mean, you're his pet. He'll tell you whatever. Um, and sometimes I feel that. Sometimes I feel Jesus talking so clearly and I can hear it. Uh, a friend of mine years ago, uh, at another church was the first one who introduced me uh, to the fact that you could have like live conversations with Jesus just as you talk with a person at the table uh, across from you at dinner uh, or lunch today. And, and some days I feel that. Uh, some days I hear Jesus' loving and affirming voice very clearly. Uh, my wife was doing some cleaning in our house and, and she asked me to throw away these, I don't know if you've noticed, but oftentimes I'll carry cards in my pocket. Now on these cards will be uh, the scriptures for the week. Sometimes I'll have a card with people who are hospitalized, but on the back, on the white spot, I'm always writing down either a list of what I need to do that day, or if I think Jesus had said something to me that I want to remember or has done something for me that's just really moved me in a special way, I write it down so I don't forget. And so uh, when my wife asked me to start cleaning it out, I had like 40 of these cards I mean, some days I sit in John's place and I really feel like I'm hearing from Jesus. But more often than I sit in John's place, sometimes I feel like I'm in Judas's place. You know, Judas, he's the one that didn't finish the journey. Jesus said, not all of you are clean because basically one of them wasn't gonna graduate. He wasn't going to go with them. Judas was the one, of course, who dropped out and betrayed Jesus uh, in uh, giving away his uh, location to those who would arrest him. Now, there are a number of theories about why Judas would have done this. One is he did it for the money, but that doesn't seem likely because he gets rid of the money uh, uh, before he takes his own life. Another is in the Gospel of John, it says Satan got into him. Uh, But I want to note for you, the particular way I think Satan got into him, what was the open door that Satan used? Many people will believe it's the door of expectation. Um, a lot of folks uh, note that Judas was from Iscariot, which is the only zealot village in, um, in Judea. And so Judas would have wanted probably and expected an armed revolt against Rome. And I think he followed Jesus hoping that Jesus would lead that revolt. Many people believe he betrayed Jesus because he thought once Jesus got cornered on the cross, Jesus would finally call down the angels from heaven and, and the ball game would be over. And Judas and the disciples would win. So sometimes I think it's just he expected one thing and Jesus didn't deliver it in the way that he expected it. Sometimes I get shot down by my expectations. I think God's gonna make a smooth path. I think things are gonna flow the way I flow. You've probably heard the phrase that oftentimes our expectations are um, premeditated resentments 
Or another way to think of them, their resentments and waiting. You know, when we set up an expectation for somebody else, uh, we just give them a way to disappoint us. And so maybe that was it. And Judas just said, this isn't working out the way I thought. Uh, and so he didn't want to stay. I don't know. I, I, sometimes I, I've been there. I'm thinking if there's one more, one more tragedy uh, in our church family, uh, if there's one more email that I really don't want to read, if there's one more rumor coming across my desk, that's it, Lord. I just can't take it. It doesn't meet my expectations. I think we all know people whose expectations of the church uh, can be disappointed and uh, of Jesus, therefore, as the head of the church. A friend of mine, Years ago, Presbyterian pastor, one day the head of his board, the head of the session, came by his house one day and left uh, in the mailbox the, his keys to the church and a note. And the note was, I can't do this church stuff anymore. The bad far outweighs the good. I'm finished. Turned in his keys, walked away. Truth of the matter is, we see people walk away all the time, but the reality is uh, that the statistics are today that 80% of people who are pastors in America, Protestant pastors, 80% of them who are currently pastors will not be pastors when they retire. They won't make it to their retirement. The disappointment, the unmet expectations is not just among people in the church. It's among people leading the church. It's just not what we expected. And a little bit like Judas, we're tempted to pack it in. And it doesn't take much because I think we're sort of wired in that way anyway. Um, I read a, a cartoon not too long ago and, and, the, and the man is praying and he says, lead me not into temptation. I'm pretty good at finding it myself. You know, I think we're kind of predisposed sometimes to wander from God, and, and that happens. And so, you know, sometimes I'm in Judas's place, to be honest. But the one place I never sit, I'm never in the chair of Jesus. And that's not because I know I'm not God. I, I mean, I could never do what Jesus did at this dinner. He takes the very person who he knows is going to betray him. And as best we can tell by the evidence, since they're sharing the same bowl, that means what we know about seating arrangements at dinners in, in those days is that John is on one side because he's the youngest and he has to, has to ask the question, why is this night different from every other night? And then on the other side of Jesus is whoever is the guest of honor. Judas sat in the guest of honor seat. I couldn't do that. The one who was going to betray him, the enemy, he treated like a friend and included him for the whole dinner. Could we do that? I don't think I can do that. I mean, I can't include enemies, much less just critics. I have a hard time finding a place for them at my table. I was uh, reading uh, not too long ago about Toni Morrison. You may be uh, familiar with her. She's African-American author. She did some research on different religions, concept of paradise or heaven. And this is what she found out across the religions. There were always three things in common. Number one, it's you and me together. Number two, forever. And number three, they're not with us. In other words, the thing that makes it heaven is the enemy's not there. But the thing that makes it the Lord's Supper is that the enemy is there and that Jesus has made a place. How can he do that? I, I don't know. I guess because he's God. 
you know, obviously, hopefully God is a much higher character than I am and quality. I, it reminds me of something. That it's a story that's told uh, where I went to school. Years ago, the students uh, in the late 60s took over the administration building at Duke and, you know, in student protest. So things are getting a little out of hand. They've got the building, their stuff set on fire, and, and the students are chanting. And, and the story's told that two seminary professors are walking across the campus, and they kind of go around the administration building, and one looks at the other and says, do you know why I believe Jesus is the Son of God? And the other one's like, no, why? And he said, because it says in the Bible that he looked on the crowds and he had compassion on them. What the professor was saying is, it's very hard for me to have compassion on these protesters right now. And yet Jesus would have. How can he include the enemy? Maybe because he's God. Maybe because like we've talked about before, remember Brene Brown's point that most people you and I know are doing just about the best they can. And if they're messing up, if, if we knew what was really going on in their life, we might understand it. Maybe it's that. But here's what I think really is going on with Jesus. It's at the very first part of chapter 13. It says that Jesus knew that he was going to the Father. And it says that a couple times. Jesus knows on this last night that he's going home, that he has a home, that he is already accepted and loved. Here's my theory. If you and I know that we are accepted and loved and that we have a place at the table, we are more willing to make a place at the table for those who are not like us. And when you and I aren't completely sure that we're loved and accepted, then we will fight for our place at the table and even keep other people out to try to gain our own. The late Fred Craddock put it this way. He said, I find that when I am at war with myself, I tend to casualties of the people around me. When we're not sure of our own value and loved, we'll take it out on others. They did a a survey about three decades ago in Psychology Today among their readers. And and that's what they found out that um, 90% of the readers of Psychology Today who claim to be atheists also identified that they had a horrible relationship with their earth father. It was like, because they couldn't find that acceptance at home They never dreamed there would be acceptance anywhere else, especially from the heavenly father. Our life has to be grounded in acceptance. And when we know that we're loved as we are, then I think we're more likely to open our hearts and our tables to others. You see, the truth of the matter is, if you put those 12 chairs around a table, whatever the shape is, I'm probably in Peter's seat. Jesus tries to come over to Peter and wash his feet, which is a very intimate act. You know, when you wash your feet, you're going to take off part of your clothing. Um, You're going to come to a person's uh, feet, you know, that part of the body that most people aren't, you know, looking at and wash them. It's a very intimate, um, humble moment and Peter can't accept it. It's almost like he won't let Jesus love him in that way Is it any surprise that he will end up denying Jesus just a few hours later? Because if you can't let Jesus love you, you're not likely to love yourself or anybody else. I don't know if you saw the news this week. Did you see about that 22 and a half pound rock that was used as a doorstop in a a farm in Michigan for 30 years? 
So finally, the person who owned the farm went to a professor at Central Michigan University who studies you know, a, a geologist of sorts and showed her the rock. And this is what she said. The professor said, for 18 years, people have been bringing me meteor wrongs. She said, they always think they're part of a meteor, but they're not. She said, but this man on his farm has bought me a meteor right. And she found out that, in fact, this was a space rock and not that she estimated its value at a hundred thousand dollars a hundred thousand dollar doorstop what turned it from a doorstop to something of infinite value was bringing it to an expert who knows what things are really worth when we come to the table we come to the one who looks at us and says you're no doorstop you're no doorstop You are of incredible worth. And when we hear that, maybe just maybe, we might grant that incredible worth to the person sitting next to us.